Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLamey, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. There is a better way to practice architecture. When you build a thriving business, you will then have the time and the financial resources to do your best work to design the architecture that you want to design. We've built a powerful program of resources, training, and community for you, the small firm architect. We'll show you how to build a better business so you can be a better architect. Entree Architect Academy. To learn more, visit the homepage at entrearchitect.com. You are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, and this is episode 186. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, whether you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, FreshBooks, Core by BQE Software, and RCAT. And I'm going to share more about these great companies later in the show. But before we get started here, just take a quick note to schedule some time later today, as soon as you're finished listening here, to go visit each one of them and let them know that you appreciate them for supporting us, the Entree Architect community. Brandon Hubbard, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's good having you here. Uh, Brandon is a licensed architect based in San Francisco, California, uh, and the founder of thearchitectsguide.com, a website dedicated to helping architects with their job applications and career goals. Uh, he practiced architecture with Foster & Partners in London, where he worked on several high-profile design projects, including Heathrow Terminal 3, the Bloomberg headquarters in London, and the uh, Samba, is that pronounced Samba? Samba Bank Tower. Samba yeah. Bank Tower in Riyadh. Uh, currently, he's a senior architect at Heller Manis Architects uh, back in San Francisco, working on large-scale commercial and residential projects. And you may have seen him online, because he's all over online, where he publishes often uh, about architecture careers uh, at the Architects Guide website, as well as a content provider over at Arc Daily, so you may have seen some of the some of his writing over there. Um, so, that Brandon, that gives us a little bit of a background on you. I want to dive a little bit deeper, like I usually do up here up front. Uh, I want to hear your origin story. Go back to where you discovered architecture and 
share your origin story to where you are today. Sure, thanks. So I guess I can start way back at the beginning. Uh, I was actually born in New Zealand. Um, I lived there until I was around 10 years old. Um, afterwards, relocated with my family to Montana, um, where I completed most of my schooling, uh, including a master's in architecture from MSU Bozeman. Um, during my last couple of years at university and shortly after graduation, I was working for a small firm in Bozeman. And it just so happened that the firm landed a $100 million residential project, and it was only a small five-person firm. So um, in a very short amount of time, I gained a lot of experience um, trying to coordinate all of that. And uh, afterwards, uh, after graduation, I really enjoyed working on that large-scale project, coordinating all the teams and everything. So looking around Montana, there wasn't a lot of options for that scale of project anymore. So I decided to look abroad and ended up applying for several firms in London and got uh, some offers and ended up joining Foster and Partners in London. Um, and then I was there for seven years. And during that time, I relocated to Madrid for a while. We did some projects there because um, there was a, a client base there. And uh, so, yeah, seven years of Fosters and huge range of projects there. Rode out the recession in 2008, uh, kind of a scary time for everyone, but uh, survived that. And I was in the UK long enough to gain citizenship there. So I actually have three citizenships, the US, the UK, and New Zealand. So uh, I've got quite a passport collection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then I moved to San Francisco in 2014 to work with Heller Manis. There's a lot going on here right now. This whole Transbay development, um, sort of large-scale projects going on. Um, and of course, when I came to California, there's a supplemental exam. So I gave myself a goal of three weeks to get that out of the way, um, finish that. Then I had all this free time afterwards. So I decided to start the Architect's Guide shortly after I came here and continues to be my uh, fun project in addition to being a full-time architect. So, so what pulled you to London? So you, you started in Montana, you, you, you pretty much started your career there and then decided that uh, you wanted a change. But right. why go overseas right off the bat? What was pulling you there? Well, I had actually wanted to relocate to China um, before that. Um, but it was this long process where I found out you had to be uh, vaccinated for certain things, which there's a six month sort of waiting period. And I was kind of ready to move. I wanted to go now. Yeah. So I thought, well, because uh, I'd had an offer in Beijing and then less now, but it was really booming right before the Olympics. And uh, so I had the six month period while I had this offer. I was like, well, during the six month period, I'll look at other parts, um, perhaps easier places to move abroad first. So I looked at English speaking countries and obviously London's a, a good example. So I ended up getting some uh, offers there and spent a week in London touring around and thought it, it happened to be the sunniest London day in the past <laughs> 10 years. I don't think I ever saw the sun for the next seven years. I actually got sunburned in the park. Um, so maybe I had a bad impression of London for my visit, but ended up moving there. So it, it all worked out. And never, never made it to China. I never did. I worked on projects in China, but never actually lived there. Maybe, maybe someday. Did you visit when you were there? Uh, no, I didn't. It was yeah. also from from London based. Things, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then, so what brought you back to the U.S.? Why, why leave well, London once you were there? Yeah, you kind of. I felt like I reached a point where you sort of have to pick a country. I think because yeah, yeah. still had family in the U.S. and friends in London, and I felt sort of I was always flying back and forth and. Um, so even taking the AREs back then, they didn't offer them in London. They do now. But, uh, so I was booking tests three in a week and flying all the way back oh. and doing that and trying to get them done. So it ended up just being, I felt like I just needed to move back to the U S it was just time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I wanted the, I wanted the passport to open up all of the EU as an option to work anywhere. But then once Brexit happened, it sort of cut that off. So now I can still go back to the UK, but it's not all of Europe, but yeah. And then, so when you came back to the U S you landed in San Francisco, um, right. did you intend to, to land in California or, or did you sort of look elsewhere and that's, that was your best offer? I had offers in New York as well. It seemed based on my sort of background of large scale projects, those were really the two big options, at least a few years ago, of um, what was happening here in San Francisco. And then of course, New York's known for large scale projects. So 
Um, when I was com- kind of comparing the two, I thought, well, I really wanted to change. I'm really, I like the outdoors. So I thought New York was pretty much just an American version of London. So I wanted to have an option of, uh, um, a little more outdoors since I had grown up in Montana and, uh, New Zealand, I felt like California was maybe a bit, a bit more of my style and it's worked out. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, 40 minutes North of New York city is the Catskill mountains. So, okay. Well, <laughs> and the Adirondacks are North of no, those. So. No, nothing against New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so you landed in, in San Francisco, a city that I love. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your your decision to go to London to to go uh, abroad. Were there any lessons that you would would want to share? Was it was it a positive experience? Was it a negative experience? Was it something? Is it something that you would recommend other architects do? Well, one of my articles for Arc Daily is was something like seven reasons you shouldn't work abroad in architecture, and I that saw got that. A lot of uh, a lot of angry comments, <laughs> so much so I, had, I wrote an article Which responding to all the angry comments. <laughs> that means um, traffic. Normally, I try to ignore them, but um, and it's definitely good and bad. I think um, I think it's hard. I think it's great for depending on what your goals are. I think if your goal is to um, meet a diverse group of people and work on interesting projects. Um, then potentially moving abroad or just outside of your own sort of, um, safety area is, uh, is a good idea to sort of, um, maybe shake your brain a little bit, get some ideas going. Um, definitely seeing Europe, a flight that's an hour long, you'll be in a completely different country. Um, we're in the U S you've just been a different state. Um, so I think definitely Europe's a, a great option, um, for anyone living in the U.S. and vice versa for anyone wanting to come over to the U.S. from from Europe. Um, I think some of the downsides um, is potentially if you're gaining a lot of experience, if I'm learning all of the regulations and codes and everything in Europe, there is obviously some overlap. But if I come back to the U.S., there's going to be a bit of a disconnect between the U.S.-based um, regulations and um, local codes. Whereas if you're you know, spend your entire career in one location, you know, everyone, you know, all of the codes, you know, all of the regulations. Um, so I think by being separated from that a little bit can be, be challenging and sort of have to relearn a lot of things when you come back. But, um, in my experience, it was generally positive. So, yeah, that's interesting. I never, I never thought of it that way. You know, you you often hear about architects going abroad to experience the rest of the world, which is, you know, uh, I think very, very positive. I think that sort of gives you a perspective that that uh, that exists outside of the United States. There are different yeah. points of view and different ways of doing architecture, and uh, you just experience different things that you wouldn't you wouldn't experience here. Uh, but I never actually considered the fact that if you are going to you know practice there, that you're learning architecture based on the codes and the regulations of the you know, jurisdiction that you're working in. Uh, and when you come back, you have to relearn a, a lot of that uh, or, or even unlearn some of it when you come back to the United States. I think also, too, if your intention is to start your own firm, a lot of that comes from networking in that environment, um, knowing people. Mm-hmm. And if you're completely if I'm thrown into San Francisco and know and it's a little bit different sort of the social media environment, like we we wouldn't have known each other if it wasn't for the Internet. But yeah, um, so when you're suddenly exposed to a new environment, you have to then start your network all over again. Um, so I think that can be challenging if your intention is to start your own firm too. Um, but of course I've had plenty of friends move from London and relocate to the U S and they're doing fine. So, yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's certainly not a bad thing. There's just, there's just positive and negative pieces right. to it. Yeah. Um, so you, you, so you come back to the United States, you, you base yourself in San Francisco, um, and you start this new platform called the Architect's Guide uh, online, um, and it's a place where you help people with their careers and sort of get get help you help them find a job in in architecture and and uh, advance their careers. So, what inspired you to do that? I mean, you come back from Foster, you get a new job doing big projects in in California. Um, why build this platform? 
I think part of it came from when I was at Foster's, I received so many emails from people, um, more or less asking how to get a job there. Um, such an sort of iconic firm, especially with yeah. all the Apple stuff going on. Um, and then they'd send me their resumes and portfolios and then ask me to get them a job. And I sort of looked at it and said, well, there's a lot of problems with this. Um, so I would try and provide feedback to them, say, look, change this, move this around, reword all of this, you know, fix typos. <laughs> Um, and then I would do all of that. And then once they had sort of incorporated my comments, then I would forward it on to the senior management in the firm. Um, and then also when I was at Foster's, I gave a lot of tours of um, the office to architects and students. And usually after the tour, I would sit down with them to answer any questions. And again, the conversation would go to, how can I get a job here? So I would sometimes spend hours talking to these people about um, what I did because um, one of the things I did that seemed to always get people's attention was that I applied to Foster's with a two-page portfolio. <laughs> and so most of the portfolios we're getting were, you know, 60, 80, 100 pages, and mine is only two. So um, that's another thing I've hence since written about. But um, so I also found I was giving the same advice over and over again. So when I came here, I thought this got to be an easier way than me just emailing one person at a time. So I decided to sort of take this body of knowledge I had accumulated over the past several years and um, turn that into a website, which then became the architect's guide. So it just made it easier for me too, that instead of replying, I could just say, oh, check this article out. Yeah. Yeah. So you built it out of survival. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Just yeah. Uh, keep my and ironically though my email's gone way up in terms of a number per day so yeah i guess right. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah well now you built a platform that people are finding you there and you see so now you're getting even more questions but the the benefit of of the platform is that you have those articles that so you at least you have a very quick way to, to say hey just check this article out or you know you have offerings and services as well on there now uh yeah. so, so you can actually you know point them in the direction of one of those one of those services um Let's go just quickly back to that two-page portfolio. Um, so, talk. Tell me that story. Well, how did you get the job with only a two-page portfolio? Well, I think so. I guess there's. I usually teach two portfolios. So one is your application portfolio, and one is your interview portfolio. My interview portfolio, when I got the invite, was much longer mm -hmm. and included a bunch of things. But the actual application portfolio was only two pages. So one page was uh, academic work, and one page was professional work. So I think there was three pa three photos per page, and then short description of um, what I always talk about is what have you actually done on it. I think a lot of I see a lot of applications that make the mistake of just first of all, way too much text usually, mm -hmm. and not describing what you actually did on the project. It's always just talking about how great the project is and uh, all its features and it's sustainable, but that doesn't really let the employer know your skills and what sort of um, your role in the project was. Um, so I really worked hard to sort of highlight what I did on all these projects and um, it uh, worked out. So And was, also... Go ahead. Um, also people just don't have a lot of time to read these things. So all these, most firms, generally speaking, don't have an HR department. So there's not someone dedicated to going through every application. It's just an architect, um, taking some time out of his day to go through his applications. And if he has to sort through 60 pages, maybe it's, um, a bit harder to get through. And I think you're often judged on your weakest work. So if you shorten it up, odds are they'll, uh, just look at the good stuff. Yeah. So, so do you think that, um, in addition to the fact that you focused on the quality rather than quantity, um, but the fact that it was different than all of the others, if everybody else is sending 80 page portfolios, um, and yours is, you know, highlighted that it's shorter. Um, do you think that also sort of helps you get noticed? I think, I think that that's possible. Um, I remember one of my professors said he was, and have a bet with another professor saying that there could be a thesis that was only two pages long and that that would be uh, sufficient. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind as mm -hmm. well. Like um, if something's really worth saying, maybe you can squeeze it into as little as possible. Um, and also I think another thing is if it's very short, it's it kind of it's almost like a first date. You just tell a little bit about yourself. You don't tell your entire life story. You kind of build up a little bit of uh, interest. It's like, well, I want to learn more about this person. And so I'll invite him for an interview. Yeah. 
but it definitely has to be high quality that if that if it is going to be short it has to be clearly well designed uh, well right. developed um, right. and give gives a give a place where they can find additional information right so it can't right. be just two pages of junk you know because <laughs> it might pop yeah. out and they'll look at it and they'll can it'll go right into the trash yeah ideally yeah i think it's also important to know who you're sending it to are you sending it to an architect or are you sending it to an hr department mm -hmm. so all of the large firms have usually uploads to their websites um so most times it'll go to an hr manager and they'll review it so that's different than an architect reviewing it so whether or not that means you need to focus more or less on design and more on filling the criteria of a particular position it it depends but yeah. i would err more on the filling the bullet points of a particular position if you're applying to a large office yeah so know know your audience know know who you're talking to and how that that person is structured within the firm right yeah yeah that's 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 interesting um i mean it, it's i, I want to stay on this because i i think that um the idea of getting um a job today is very different. When I went to school, I went to school in the 90s. Uh, pretty much, it was uh, obviously computers were there, social media uh, was very, very, very young, wasn't being used at all for, for getting jobs. Um, it, everything that I did was, was cover letters and resumes. And mm. I didn't get a job, and I came out in the recession in, in 93. Uh, nobody was being hired. Uh, right. I've written about it. If anybody's interested, they can go to the blog and find out the story of how I got hired. But the, the one thing that I do credit is that I did make myself uh, look different. That I, for, for a long time, I was sending out the resume just like I was taught how to send out the resume. And then finally, I decided to, to design a, 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 a three, you know, trifold brochure mm -hmm. with, with limited projects. And yep. just you know, had my resume on one side, had the portfolio or you know, my cover letter on the other side. So it was just one sheet of paper, both sides folded in three and sent it out. And that that got me noticed. Didn't get me the job, but it got me noticed in a pile of hundreds of email, uh, resumes because right. it was a recession. Everybody was looking for work. Um, right. And so I definitely say, you know, figure out how to get noticed. Right. I mean, how to get noticed. Yep. And then once you get noticed, how do you stand out once you're on, in the pile of, of shortlists? Let's take a quick break here to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, BQE Software, Artcat, and FreshBooks. This podcast episode is sponsored by BQE Software, the makers of BQE Core. BQE Core revolutionizes the way architects manage projects, time and expenses, billing, and accounting. Made by BQE the company behind ArchiOffice, Core saves you time while giving you the visibility, the flexibility, and the power you need to grow your firm. Work from anywhere, seamlessly collaborate, and gain transformative insights with Core's groundbreaking platform. Learn more and get a free trial at entrearchitect.com BQE. Hey, and if you want to see a demonstration of Core, I recently invited Stephen Burns of BQE Software to join me for a live Entree Architect special session webinar, where Steve had the opportunity to show us inside Core and all it has to offer us small firm architects. And a recording of that webinar is available to our community, the Entree Architect community, for free at entrearchitect.com slash webinar. So go check that out, and when you're ready to give it a try, visit entrearchitect.com slash BQE and access your fully functional trial of Core free for 15 days. Hey, if you've been listening to this podcast anytime during the past few months, you've heard me talking about our friends over at RCAT, and hopefully you're already using their free resources on a regular basis. But for those of you who have not yet checked them out, RCAT is a great tool for small firm architects. RCAT has a huge library of free content, CAD, BIM, specifications, and more. And they've done all the work for you. I mean it. They've done all the work. If you need a spec, click on over and download a CSI three-part specification in multiple formats, free. How about CAD details or BIM objects? All free, click of a mouse. RCAT has tons of building product content ready for you to use, and it's all completely free you don't even have to register to download the content. And they've recently launched something new. It's called Charette 
create a project, assign tasks, share and collaborate with colleagues and clients, all in real time, pull content directly from the RCAT database or from anywhere out on the web, and keep it in Charette. It's another free resource from RCAT for you, the Entree Architect community. Visit them right now. Go check them out, entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. That's A-R-C-A-T, entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. And click on the Charette icon right there on the homepage to check out Charette. Imagine what you can do if you had an additional two days every month to dedicate to anything that you want. Maybe you just want to spend more time on design. Maybe you want to start building that new business process. Maybe you want to start painting again. Maybe you want to spend more time with your kids. Or maybe you want to finally start that development project. Well, when you're a small firm architect using FreshBooks cloud accounting software, you could save 192 hours every month. That's two business days every month. That's the amount of administrative time that you could save this year if you're using FreshBooks. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses, automatically track your time for the whole team, buy project, and get organized with reports, communication, and notifications. My favorite feature of FreshBooks is the automated email reminders sent to my clients to remind them to pay their bills. That's done automatically and you control the whole thing. Sign up for a free 30-day unrestricted trial and get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid faster. Visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks to access FreshBooks for free. And be sure to enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. BQE Software, RCAT, and FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. It was going around for a while. There was uh, an applicant to Big Brick Engel's office yeah. where he did a YouTube video almost poking fun at the office a little bit. Um, and it was, it was, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend doing that. It was pretty entertaining. Um, I'm sure you can just Google it, but, uh, it's, he ended up getting, getting an offer. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So any way you can stand out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But you want to get noticed in a positive way. You get noticed in a negative way. It's not going to work so well. I mean, that's kind of the scary thing of social media is that one misinterpretation of something you've said and also i see a lot of architecture students they have this massive um, social media presence mm-hmm. um they've been on it say since they were in high school so that could be you know a better part of a decade of almost everything you've eaten for the past day may not be the best thing for a potential employer to be able to search through at any moment and that's best case scenario so i would say just keep in mind of what your f- footprint is and just at least google yourself and see what comes up yeah it's a it's a very different world than it was when i went to school and and was looking for that job um let's let's talk about that a little bit um a little bit more Let, but let's focus rather than students because i think students are are hearing that they're they're learning that they're coming out of school understanding how social media works uh, yeah. How their web, you know, how their websites should look and their resumes should look. But what about you know architects that have been in the profession, that haven't been through this process? Maybe they were working for somebody and they want to make a move. They want to move to another firm, maybe to advance or to a different place, and and they need to make that transition through this process of resumes and portfolios. What would you what would you um, recommend to those people who haven't been educated through this process? Uh, what are some of the most important pieces that they need to make sure that they get right? Well, I think it um, kind of comes down to what do you want? So if you're, I get a lot of questions from people who have more experience, but they often want to do something different than what they've been doing, which is kind of natural. So if they work for a small firm, they want to move to a large firm and vice versa. So I think it's taking seeing where you want to go and taking your sort of basket of experience and looking at what you can pull from that existing experience and how you can apply it to this new future position. So if you've been working for a small firm doing, you know, residential housing and uh, other small commercial property, but you want to work on airports or something, um, 
you can't say I did this house and now I want to work on this airport. It doesn't translate directly. But what you could say is I've been managing this project, working directly with the client, coordinating the consultants, and all of that stuff translates much easier. So I found it's you try and put yourself in the role of the um, the hiring manager and seeing what am I looking for and what am I looking to fill? It may not be the exact project experience, but um, it's a good chance that you can find some relationships between the two. So skills, really, you know, if you're if you're thinking about hopping from you know a small firm to a large firm or a commercial firm to a residential firm, like you said, right. that your past experience may not translate so well. Uh, but right. if you talk about the the skills that you have from doing residential work, from may, maybe doing uh, multifamily or larger scale or managing all these projects at the same time. And you right. talk about those as your strengths, um, rather than saying I've done, you know, 14 houses, let's do the hospital. Um, right. it, the skills may translate better. It may get you noticed and maybe get you into the door where you can explain yourself in person. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so know yourself, right? I mean, that's, so if the first lesson is, is know your audience, we talked about before know who you're talking to. Maybe the yep. second lesson is know yourself, know, know who you are, what your strengths are, and talk about those strengths. Yeah, I see that a lot as well, that if it's often talked about what's your elevator pitch, so tell me, you know, what are you good at? And a lot of people have trouble answering that. And it is kind of a hard question because you almost don't want to limit yourself to uh, just a couple of sentences, especially in architecture, because there's so many different areas of speciality and expertise. It's, are you a BIM manager? Are you a designer? Are you a drafter? It's sort of, you know, what what are you really proud of and what do you really excel at? That if you came into an office, you're saying, this is my, this is what I'm bringing and this is how I'm contributing to the firm. Yeah, and, and it may not be, you know, the, the design position, you know, or it may not be the spec writer. If you if you know yourself well, um, and right. you've and you've and you've intentionally gone out to explore who you are, you know, the taking some of the these uh, personality tests like like Strengths Finders and some of these other right. personality tests, so you really have it in your head. You really understand who you are and where you come from and what your strengths are. That will allow you to document that on your resume, in your portfolio, on your online uh, um, footprint. When you go into for the interview, you'll be able to uh, speak well about who you are and what your strengths are and what you're not so good at. Because I think that would also uh, show a, a potential employer, you know, that this is somebody who's different. Very, they're very self-aware of who they are. They will fit right there because they know who they are. They know their, what their strengths are as well as what their weaknesses are. Yeah, I always hear that saying, you should focus on your weak areas. I say focus on your strengths. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you can work on the weak areas, but really double down on your strengths because that's where, that's where you're going to move ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're your strengths for a reason, right? Right. When yeah. you, if you have weaknesses, it's because of who you are and where you're, where you're from. You, right. You're going to get much farther trying to grow your strengths rather than trying to, to fix your weaknesses. Right. Exactly. So what are some, you know, if, if we get the, you know, get to know your audience well and we get to, to know ourselves well and somebody wants to make that make that leap. Um, and maybe it's even somebody who's a sole practitioner, a lot of our audience, sole practitioners or, or uh, people in very small firms. And they're just they're just tired of this, you know, and they want to go work for somebody else. Yep. Um, where would you talk to somebody like that? If somebody came to you and, and emailed you and said, I'm just tired of you know running my own firm. I'm struggling here. I want to move to a, another place. What do you? What would you say to that person? I've actually had that question this week. Make sure because I work with, uh, I have coaching clients, so I help them develop their applications. And um, one of, I was actually surprised. A lot of them, some of them have 20 plus years of experience. I had originally sort of pictured my target market of you know fresh out of school, but yeah, a lot I'm not of, surprised. <laughs> and uh, a particular client actually uh, is looking to transition from a um, sole practitioner back into a firm. So it's been interesting to take um, 20 plus years of experience and sort of condense it down into um, here's a, um, a concise application for a potential employer. So I think, and maybe maybe I'm wrong on this, that um, – Employers are a little intimidated by a sole practitioner that they, especially if they've been doing doing it for 20 years, um, they may think, 
uh, this person is going <laughs> to come in and just try and take over and uh, not be a team player and just try and run the show, um, whereas I run the show. <laughs> um, so I think there's a little bit of a stigma with that. And I think that can be challenging to get over that and say, I'm just, and that's why I think you have to be clear in your documentation. Particularly, I think your cover letter is very important for this saying why you're making this transition. Because yeah. that's the first first thing an employer is going to see is, well, you've had your own office for 20 years. Why? So I think you have to be very clear about why you're making the move and be honest. Um, maybe not too honest, but do your best to, yeah, you have to answer that question. Yeah, because that'll be that's obviously the question on their mind um, why you're looking to transition. Um, so I think yeah, you have to be uh, very precise about how you answer that uh, unsaid question in your in your application. So I think that's where um, I'm a big fan of the cover letter. It seems to be maybe going away a little bit, but uh, I think it's it's very important. It adds a personal touch where resume is sort of cold and um, the letter really helps to explain your situation and give a, an overview. How important do you think um, building relationships with potential employers is? I mean, today with social media, with Twitter and Facebook, you can actually reach out to these people and connect with somebody in that firm uh, and build yeah. a relationship with them online. Uh, how important do you think that is in, in making that move sort of strategically? I think it's really important. Um, I think most of the most of the work I've gotten, even Heller Manis, was um, we were doing a joint venture with Fosters. So I kind of came in through that way, um, which is also another reminder, don't burn any bridges as you're <laughs> working your way through your career. It's architecture is a relatively small community. So you, uh, it, the odds are someone, your future boss knows your previous boss. There's a good chance of that. So I think, um, I think that's one thing to keep in mind. And, and certainly with social media, um, I think you have to be careful about how you do it. Um, don't bombard some firm with questions and retweets and emails. And um, But I think there's a way of doing it. Say, wow, I really like this project. I enjoyed that. Um, if they're mentioned in the news, uh, something like that. It's, it's a good way to just sort of let them know you're out there. Um, but... It's, yeah. it's, it's definitely challenging. I'll I think it's that. just like marketing your firm. You don't want to be out there just saying, hey, we're great, we're great, we're great, we're <laughs> great. You know, you want to build right. a relationship. You want, you want to reach out to the, to the people that you might be interested in and, and, uh, and just connect with them. Just, you know, right. just comment on something they posted and build a relationship. Like you, you know, you may have, you know, met them in a bar and you just want to have a conversation with them and you just, you know, you're just trying to, to yeah. learn a little bit about who they are and what they're doing and, and over time, you'll build a relationship and a connection. Um, yep. And then maybe that person, now that person becomes a trusted advisor to you because now you have this relationship, which, which you know, online relationships are real relationships. They're people who really care about each other that have never met. <laughs> right. And yeah. uh, it, it, um, it, it can go a long way. Yeah, definitely. I think um, if you can, I guess, not necessarily have an agenda when you reach out to people. It's right. just sort of, well, I'm just making a connection because a lot of relationships I've made online are just sort of, um, I would have never predicted down the line how things would have worked out. So having this network can really open doors that you didn't even know existed. It's kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, I think also social media and, and the internet allow us to be much more targeted as well. That, that, right. um, and I'm not sure how students coming out of architecture school now are doing it, but when I was looking for a job, it was, you know, a shotgun. You know, you'd send out 100 resumes to everybody that you can possibly send it out, and maybe you'll get two or three interviews. Yeah. Um, today, you can target. You know, you can say and learn a lot about a specific firm um, and then build a resume and a portfolio that is customized to that firm um, right. to fill a position that you know that they may have uh, or may be looking for. Uh, it, talk about that a little bit, how, how, how that's possible today. Yeah, well, I get a lot of emails saying I've yeah, I've sent out 200 resumes and I haven't heard back yet, yeah. and that's usually a red flag, meaning that they've done exactly that. They've just created some generic application and just shotgunned it to every firm on the East Coast. Um, yeah, whereas I'm always talking about creating because yeah, now we have so much information on any firm, every project they've ever done, everyone that works there. Um, you're able to look at their body of work and target 
your experience and skills to that particular firm, which I think is really powerful. Um, you sort of uh, get to spy on them a little bit and yeah. uh, do your homework. And so I think if you're um, conscious about the firm you're looking to move to and build a really um, targeted application, you're much more likely to um, uh, succeed. Yeah, and, and find the name of the person that you're sending it to. I, I <laughs> exactly. get probably six or seven resumes a week with yeah. to whom it may concern or hi, <laughs> you know, right. it's, this is not a, it's not a, um, you know, a casual letter to a friend. This is a professional document that, right. that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're pitching to somebody. And if I get something that says to whom it may concern, it doesn't go past that. It gets deleted. I don't care how good it is. Um, right. Today with the internet, especially me, uh, yeah. you know, you type anything about Entree Architect or Entrepreneur Architect or my name, you can find out my name and how to spell it. So right. if, if my name is not on the document uh, or right. in the email, it gets deleted. Right. Yeah, exactly. So is there any, are there any other tips that you uh, could provide to, uh, to somebody who might be out there looking? Um, I think uh, it would be to really... I have this thing where the Pareto principle, and if you've heard of that, it's where um, for most events, roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. So I think you should really focus on that um, that 20%. So mm -hmm. what gets the most results? So don't focus on, um, uh, I get some criticism on this, but don't turn your name into a logo. Don't spend time doing that, things like that. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, nothing wrong with it. But uh, really focus on what's going to get the best results. It's creating a targeted application. It's building a um, concise portfolio. It's uh, networking. Um, it's all the things we've talked about where it's um, really spend your time doing on the, working on things that matter. You can set up – I'm kind of – I go back and forth on online portfolios. I think they have their place, but they're not my favorite thing right now, just because a lot of them are free and there's pop-ups and it's a little uh, less, it, it distracts, I think, away from um, what you should be focusing on. Um, so I would say, yeah, really um, know, what you, know what you want and just go after that and don't get too distracted by everything else around you. How do you feel about um, people sort of building a brand around themselves because you, you mentioned the, the logo and I'm not saying the logo is the brand. I'm saying the story right. of who you are and, and the strengths that come with you uh, and, the, and the things that people know you about, the story that's told about you, that intentional story is your brand. Um, right. How important is that? And, and maybe it's not important, but, but uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's what you have to do now. I think, uh, you know, author Seth Godin talks about that in his book, uh, Lynchpin, where you become this um, outstanding, indispensable member, whether you're talking about the architecture community or within that office, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to be the last person that gets fired <laughs> because you're so essential to how that firm works based on either your skills or your, you're just a great person to be around. All of these things combined. So I think building your brand offline and online can really help with that so yeah that's a great book a linchpin by seth godin and just in yeah. case anybody missed it but yeah, um great, great I, I would recommend every book that seth godin has ever written but <laughs> specifically same, yeah. in this in this context um uh linchpin is a is a is a fantastic book about exactly what brandon is saying is that you make yourself indispensable and then they won't want to fire you because they right. can't fire you Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And building a brand around who you are and what you do and the strengths you are uh, of, yep. of, of what you have. It's uh, it's really great. So let's let's talk um, about the architect's guide uh, itself and and what you're offering there. So um, talk about that a little bit. You, you do a blog. Um, you have a bunch of offerings there. You have have some coaching services. What, what can people expect when they go there? Yeah, so I have a job resources page. I have tons of articles there you can kind of go through. It's on the full range of uh, topics, so resumes, portfolios, cover letters, um, interviews, negotiations. So I really looked at from start to end sort of how to get get what you want in, in, in architecture 
um, position. Um, I have yeah, resources there. So I have my coaching package where I work directly with people one-on-one, sort of give me what you have. I take a look at it and then I start building your applications and helping provide sort of a third-party feedback and uh, helping you out along the way of the application process. So really sort of um, helping people out that way. Um, and then I also have packages of uh, guides. So I have guides on uh, applications, interviews, and resumes. Um, and then also, um, I've started a new thing where I was getting so many emails from um, offices asking me if they could find people for this position, and I never really knew what to do with this information. So now I have a service where I take all of those offers and put them in an email every week for people. So um, people have enjoyed that lately. So that's kind of been my latest thing. Yeah, what a, what a great platform that you've built there. You know, I, it's the only one that I know of that's doing it for architects. Uh, I, I thank you for doing that. I appreciate you for putting the time and effort into building uh, such a great platform for the profession. Um, it's at thearchitectsguide.com. I want to ask you one question before we wrap up here. Uh, what's one thing that a small firm architect could do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I think sort of what I touched on earlier is to really focus on what gets the best return on your investment of time and money. I think um, we're so, um, we have a tendency to value our time at zero. And I think that's a huge, um, a huge mistake. I think if you think about um, whether I should spend three hours looking to save $15 on this particular service or something, you valued your time at $5 an hour. So uh, that's the one thing I've been trying to work on is really be conscious about how I'm spending my time being careful how to schedule it and really treating it as a valuable resource. Oh, that's a great one. And, and I could tell you the older that you get, the more focused you get. On that. <laughs> um, right. Cause I'm constantly, you know, listening to a podcast or even listening to a song or, or doing something and it pop into my head and it's like, I am not going to waste my time on this. My time is way too valuable to listen right. to the rest of this that I'm not interested in. So, uh, yep. I think that's great advice. So your website is thearchitectsguide.com. Uh, you're on Facebook and Twitter at Architects Guide without the the. Uh, so it's at Architects Guide. Uh, LinkedIn, very active on LinkedIn. Brandon Hubbard, just search him up there. Um, and all, this, all of these will be um, on the show notes at entrearchitect.com slash episode 186. Uh, we'll have links to all of this and everything that we talked about in the show. Um, Brandon, thank you very much for coming by here and sharing your knowledge and uh, and letting people know what you're doing over there at thearchitectsguide.com. Thanks, Mark. It was great. If you liked what we shared here today and find any value in what we're doing here at Entree Architect, and I hope that you are, I ask you, I ask you to share this episode with a friend. Pick one friend right now that you think might benefit from this episode and share it with them. Complete show notes and a direct link to download this episode will be found right there at entrearchitect.com slash episode 186. That's the link to share, entrearchitect.com slash episode 186. Hey, and don't forget to visit the website right there on the homepage and learn more about Entree Architect Academy. It's our private online membership program that's built for you, the small firm entrepreneur architect. That's you. You can build a better business, and we can show you how. To learn more, visit the homepage right there on the homepage, entrearchitect.com. My name is Mark R. LePage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this i'm looking for projects you got anything i'm not there yet because it scares the out of me dreaming of launching your own architecture firm well we'll buckle up for a wild ride with emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm 
where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> I did it guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.